Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2023. It's been 3,261 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 342 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess that the battle for control of Bakhmut has reached a critical phase with the addition of Russian forces to the Axis and the ongoing attempt to create a technical encirclement. Second, we concur with recent assessments by other analysts that it is highly likely the Russian Federation will launch a new offensive before February 24th to try and deliver a tactical victory before the anniversary of the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Third, we maintain that the significant increase in disinformation and misinformation from Russian sources is being directed by Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Federation Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov, as part of his hybrid warfare doctrine. Fourth, the RAND Corporation agreed with our assessment that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative while we maintain the exception for the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Fifth, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine remains combat ineffective and is relying on World War II tactics that Field Marshal Georgi Zhukov would recognize to move the line of conflict. Sixth, we maintain that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned with private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin is continuing, and Russian President Vladimir Putin is the largest benefactor. Seventh, we maintain that punitive missile and drone strikes targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue. Eighth, we maintain that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Ninth, We maintain that the Russian Federation's inventory of caliber cruise missiles is critically low, based on the continued decline of launches from the Black Sea Fleet. Tenth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Eleventh, We maintain there will be a second wave of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation in February 2023 under the guise of the existing mobilization decree from September 21, 2022, which was never suspended. And finally, 
We assess that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of an offensive operation is negligible. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. There continued to be few reports of fighting in Luhansk by any reliable source, with artillery exchanges and squad-sized units fighting positional battles. Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery fire on the Svatova and Kremina axes. A geolocated video showed a Ukrainian BTR-80 armored personnel carrier, or APC, being hit by Russian artillery near Dibrova. Based on the video, we move the line of conflict northeast, closer to Kremina. On the Siversk axis, Russian forces continued attacks on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with no change in the situation. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Control and Coordination, or JCCC, released pictures allegedly showing the damage from the HIMARS strike in Alchevsk. In our assessment, the claim of a HIMARS strike is pretty sus. The crater indicates the rocket didn't hit any target, which is highly unusual for the Guided Multiple Launch Rocket Systems, or GMLRS, and it's not the size of a typical HIMARS strike on a soil surface. The Ukrainian National Resistance Center claimed that the Russian company Strokikom, hired to work on the Wagner Line in Luhansk, refuses to send their employees to Ukraine. The company claims that the LNR and Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, will not assure the safety of their employees and there's a lack of adequate housing. Russian forces continue to build up in Kremina and Rubizhne, although there have been no indications that conditions are being set for an imminent offensive. We are monitoring artillery activity in the region. In northeast Donetsk, we've updated the Ukrainian objective to defend Siversk and Bakhmut, push into the Luhansk Oblast, and minimize civilian casualties. On the Kremina axis, Russian forces led by the Second Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, continued attempts to advance in the direction of Yampolivka, according to the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU. The situation is deteriorating on the Solidar axis as Russian Mobix and VDV forces take more of a leading role from PMC Wagner. Russian troops reached Sakoivantseti and crossed the Bakhmutovka River. The GSAFU reported Russian troops advanced on Vasyukivka with Ukrainian forces holding defensive lines. The T-513 highway ground line of communication, called a GLOC, that's a supply line, from Siversk is severed. Fighting continued near Rozdolivka, and based on terrain analysis, we assess that Russian forces likely advanced 500 to 750 meters and are on the outskirts of Mykolaivka. Fighting continued in Krasnohora, with Ukrainian forces surrounded on three sides. There was an unconfirmed report that reinforcements were brought in to hold the defensive positions. On the Bakhmut axis, fighting continued on the city's northern, northeastern, and eastern edges. The composite forces of Russian troops and PMC Wagner continued attempts to advance on Paraskovivka, with Ukrainian forces maintaining defensive lines. Fighting at the meatpacking plant and near the sparkling wine factory continued. 
A geolocated video showed Ukrainian artillery firing on a squad of Russian troops, moving at night into a home on the western edge of the forest plantation. With Russian forces now in the first two blocks of residential homes in the northeast part of the city. A geolocated video at the MiG 23 static display at the western edge of Bakhmut, recorded three kilometers from Ivanivsky, had the sound of intense artillery fire in it. As with most of the photos and videos we reference on the podcast, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Some assessment here. PMC Wagner, supported by Russian artillery units, has made substantial gains in the last 48 hours and has likely broken through the Ukrainian main defensive line south of the city. The H514 highway G-lock to Kostyantanivka is almost certainly compromised and is close to falling under Russian fire control. The situation is probably worse on the M3 highway G-lock to Slovyansk. After an offensive that started on May 8th from Popozna and on May 17th from Svitlodarsk, a shift in tactics starting on January 6th to force a technical encirclement versus attack Bakhmut head-on is creating the first meaningful progress Russian forces have had on any axis since July 3rd. With Russian forces also advancing in a northwest direction, pressure will be added to Siversk. In our assessment, We believe there is a higher probability of Russian forces building in Kremina and Rubizhne advancing south if winter conditions favor a frozen crossing of the Siversky Donets to establish a bridgehead. From that position, we believe Russian forces could advance on Siversk while flanking Ukrainian troops west of Kremina. In this scenario, Ukrainian defensive lines would collapse and a pullback to Kramatorsk and Slovyansk would be required. The situation for Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut has not yet reached a critical point where a withdrawal is needed, but without stopping the Russian advances to the north and south, there is a significant possibility that the general staff will be forced to order a retreat from the city. Due to the depth of defensive structures built as far back as the Cold War, recapturing the city will be problematic. A quick housekeeping note here. Due to the continued advance of PMC Wagner and Russian forces south of Bakhmut, we are now calling this region the Kostyantanivka axis. On the Kostyantanivka axis, we made more changes to the map based on new intelligence. Russian state media reported from the edge of Klishivka near the cemetery, while geolocated pictures showed PMC Wagner in the village center for the first time. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported fighting, quote, in the area of the settlement. Another geolocated video showed a Russian sniper attacked by a drone-dropped IED west of Klishivka near the canal. We were prepared to consider this a positive development, as snipers typically are on the forefront or past the line of conflict. But intelligence coming in from the early morning this morning indicated that Russian forces were advancing towards Topochki, and may have crossed the Siversky Donets Donbass Canal. PMC Wagner forces have advanced to within two and a half kilometers of Ivanivsky from Klishivka. Based on this information, we moved the line of conflict back to where we had it on January 28th and moved Russian forces further north toward Ivanivsky. Further south on the Kostyantanivka axis, 
The GSAFU reported that Russian attacks in the area of Kurdyumivka and Ozaryanivka were repulsed. Mercenaries with Wargonzo reported that Russian forces in Kurdyumivka continued to be pounded by Ukrainian artillery. On the Toretsk axis, a geolocated video confirmed that Ukrainian and Russian forces had traded the defensive positions in northern Mayorsk again. Based on the new intelligence, we made a small change to the line of conflict. The GSAFU confirmed a Ukrainian Su-25 was shot down near Kramatorsk on January 27th. Major Danilo Gennadievich Murashko, 24 years old, was flying his 142nd combat mission since February 24th when his plane was hit. Major Murashko did not survive. In southwest Donetsk, there was only positional fighting across the region. On the Avdiivka axis, Mercenaries with Wargonzo reported continued fighting for control of Vodyana, while our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal Kremlin pariah, PMC Wagner target, and failed Mobik, Igor Girkin Strelkov, lamented there had been, quote, no decisive success to gain control of the village. Wargonzo reported continued fighting on the edges of Pervomaisky, while mercenaries with Rybar wrote fanfiction of a Russian advance toward Nevelsky. On the Marenka axis, limited fighting in the center of Marenka continued, with Rybar writing, quote, The difficulty in liberating the city is complicated by the continuous supply and transfer of reinforcements of the Ukrainian army in this area. End quote. We can't assess why Wargonzo continues to cling to the disproven claims of intense fighting and Russian control of 85% of the rubble that was once Marenka. Strelkov assessed the offensive had, quote, stopped for now, despite all the loud statements that Russia is just about to completely liberate the village. It is not possible, end quote. On the Uhlidar axis, the Russian offensive toward the city and the northwest corner of Pavlivka has entered a pause, or possibly ended. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Khodakovsky of the 11th Motor Infantry Brigade of the Russian 1st Army Corps wrote, quote, Local skirmishes, artillery exchanges, non-flying weather, aerial reconnaissance is practically blind. The enemy, he means Ukraine, remotely threw many pedal mines in all directions, even the village of Mikilske, end quote. Strelkov was the first Russian mill blogger to write an obituary about the offensive, declaring, quote, Bravado statements about a breakthrough directly in the urban-type settlement turned out to be a lie. End quote. Fighting continued, with the Russian MOD saying there was activity, quote, in the areas of, and making a vague statement about improving tactical positions. We assess that Wargonzo's claim of Russian troops in the northeastern part of Uhlidar was a typographical error. Hey, everybody mixes up their north and south sometimes. At the same time, Rybark continued writing fanfiction claiming fighting was ongoing in the settlement. Rybar disingenuously made its claim likely based on a Ridovka video, which has been intentionally misattributed. Propagandists with Ridovka falsely claimed it was recorded in Uhledar when geolocation indicated it was recorded in Pavlivka, and that the video is from the first day of the assault, or possibly earlier, based on weather conditions. 
Video from within Ulidar recorded the sound of significant artillery exchanges to the south, despite the poor weather conditions reported by Khodakovsky. Researchers with Inform Napalm, who broke the story about the disastrous Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, river crossing in May 2022, confirmed GSAFU reports that the reconnaissance company attached to the 155th Separate Brigade of the Russian Naval Infantry was combat destroyed on the first day of attacks on Ukhlidar. The 155th, one of the last intact elite Russian units, suffered crippling losses in the fall during the Pavlivka offensive. The unit was reconstituted using Mubiks. Moving on to Zaporizhia. If you were paying attention just then, you may have noticed that we've separated out the Zaporizhia region. We've moved our Kherson reporting into the western and central Ukraine segment. So, let's update some objectives. The Russian objective is to prevent a Ukrainian offensive into Zaporizhia, integrate captured territory into the Russian Federation, and capture the remainder of the oblast. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate Russian-occupied areas, prevent further Russian advances, exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict, and protect civilians. Naturally, on the first day of reporting activity in Zaporizhia as an axis, essentially nothing happened. Heavy shelling was reported in Orekhiv, with Russian forces firing 10 salvos of Grad rockets from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, while Russian collaborator and propagandist Vladimir Rogov claimed that Ukrainian forces heavily shelled Polokhi. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is unchanged. So, yeah, that's about it. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Black Sea fleet had 11 ships on patrol, including three missile carriers capable of launching up to 20-caliber cruise missiles. We don't see Russian forces setting conditions for another missile attack, and poor weather through the upcoming week will likely hamper reconnaissance efforts to plan the next assault. As we had previously assessed on January 27th, after Russian missile strikes disabled two transformer farms serving Odessa, the city has almost no power, with spotty electrical service for four hours a day and officials struggling to maintain critical infrastructure. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces continued mutual shelling across the Dnipro River. Local media reports in Russian-occupied Crimea claimed the Russian 126th Coastal Defense Brigade of the Black Sea Fleet suffered, quote, dozens of casualties during a mortar attack near Kherson. There weren't additional details on the location of their deployment. In north and northeast Ukraine, Operational Command North reported the villages of Moska, Sopich, and Leonivka were shelled with more than 30 120mm mortars fired from across the international border. There were no injuries reported. On the Russian front, local reports from the Bilgorod Federal District claimed that Bieslyodovka was shelled, injuring two people. The FSB arrested three teenagers in Moscow after they sabotaged railroad tracks. There was no other information about the incident at the time of recording. 
You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Fortune.com released a story with a shocking headline, quote, The WHO is urging countries to start stockpiling medicines for nuclear emergencies after the EU's latest warning on Putin, end quote. Written by London-based reporter Oriana Rosa Royal. The World Health Organization did release updated guidelines for mitigating and treating radiation exposure on January 27th. The last time these guidelines were updated was in 2007, before the Fukushima meltdown in Japan. Since 2011, new therapies and procedures have been developed to prevent excessive radiological exposure and, more importantly, how to treat radiation poisoning, particularly acute radiation syndrome, or ARS. An international team of health experts and scientists, including from the Russian Federation, was assembled in 2021 and worked for almost two years on the new recommendations. The final review started in May 2022 and was completed at the beginning of 2023. We link to the completely unscary and rather boring document in our full situation report on Patreon, and it can be found on the WHO website. Quick sidebar, the truth matters. So while scary SEO-optimized clickbait headlines are great for views and ad revenue and a series of terrifying TikTok videos and tweets on social media, the misrepresentation of the work done by the World Health Organization was absolutely irresponsible. Staying on brand, it's been exactly zero days since a Kremlin nuclear threat. The Russian Federation is threatening not to renegotiate the START treaty, which was extended from 2021 to February 4, 2026, and was already on life support. The original treaty was signed in 2011 and called for the United States and Russia to cap the Combined Deployment of Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, or ICBM, Submarine-Launched Base Missiles, or SLBM, and Heavy Bombers at 700, and cut active nuclear warheads to 1,550 by 2018. The total strategic assets to support a nuclear triad of ICBMs, SLBM-capable submarines, and heavy bombers capable of delivering nuclear weapons were to be capped at 800. Ukraine is forming five new armored and mechanized brigades, which will be equipped with Western equipment. The 21st, 116th, and 118th will be new mechanized brigades and are currently forming. The 33rd Mechanized Brigade formed in 2016 but demobilized before February 24, 2022, is being reactivated. The 47th Artillery Brigade recently completed training and has been deployed to Kharkiv. The five brigades are equal to two divisions, equivalent to one army. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that NATO does not see any signs that Russian President Vladimir Putin has reset his goals regarding the war against Ukraine. Stoltenberg believes Russia is preparing for a new offensive and that up to 200,000 soldiers have been mobilized. 
NATO believes the Russian military is also actively building weapons and ammunition to support a new offensive in the coming weeks or months. The Wall Street Journal and New York Times reported that Israel was behind the drone strike on an Iranian weapons factory in Isfahan over the weekend. A Pentagon spokesperson would not confirm Israel's responsibility to the United States news organization CNN, but would confirm that the United States was not involved. Neither Iran nor Israel have released formal statements about the matter at the time of recording, with Iranian officials denying the factory was seriously damaged. German weapons maker Rheinmetall will increase production of 155mm artillery shells to 450 to 500,000 per year, up from an estimated 65,000 produced in 2022. The company currently makes 250,000 120mm smoothbore tank rounds annually, one of the world's largest producers of tank ammunition. Rheinmetall is also in talks with the United States to start producing rockets for the M142, M270, Mars 2, and LRU GMLRS systems, more commonly known as HIMARS. Germany has ordered Vicent 1MC mine-clearing armored vehicles for Ukraine to be delivered by the end of 2023. German officials did not disclose how many vehicles were being purchased. Ukraine has become one of the most heavily mined nations on the planet, with up to 40% of the country saturated. United States President Joe Biden said, quote, no, to providing Ukraine with F-16s when a reporter in the Rose Garden asked, It was a rare moment of brutal honesty from Biden, who in the past, when asked by reporters about weapon systems under consideration, has repeatedly quipped, quote, you think I'm going to tell you? End quote. On the same day, French President Emmanuel Macron would not rule out supplying Ukraine with fighter planes, saying, quote, in principle, nothing is prohibited, end quote. The Netherlands says it's ready to consider sending fighter airplanes to Ukraine, but no formal decision has been made. British Minister of Defense Ben Wallace said that Challenger 2 main battle tanks, or MBTs, would enter service in Ukraine by May. The United Kingdom is providing 14 tanks, enough to arm a company. Mede Fredriksson, the Prime Minister of Denmark, has said that at the meeting with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, the pair discussed providing tanks for Ukraine. She did not indicate if Denmark would support the request. While the nation at the entrance of the Baltic Sea has 44 Leopard 2 tanks, some are committed in the Baltic states as part of a NATO defense force. Over 60 Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicles, or IFVs, left North Charleston, South Carolina, bound for Ukraine. The Bradleys Ukraine is receiving are M2A2 ODSSA variants, with extensive upgrades from lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. A video shared by the Operational Armed Forces of Ukraine has raised some questions about what other type of military aid is being considered. The short clip showed Ukrainian troops training in the UK deploying from CH-47 Chinook transport helicopters. There have been no public discussions about providing Ukraine with the Chinook, but the video raised eyebrows in the analyst community. Speaking of raising eyebrows, 
let's talk about Russian mobilization. Russian telegram channel and mill blogger Empire Smoker outlined why Russian military units don't have enough trucks and why Russian production can't be increased. Truck factories were already running at maximum output in the three years before the special military operation. While Russia has now shuttered automotive factories, you can't flip a switch and turn a Lada factory into a Ural or Kamaz truck factory. If Russia were to invest in building new production lines, it would be a minimum lead time of two years, and that's without taking sanctions into consideration. By the time production was ramped up, the war in Ukraine would likely hopefully be over, leaving the economy stuck with empty truck factories. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that North Korea is helping Russia with rockets, saying during a press briefing, quote, We also know North Korea provides military assistance to Russia in the war, with rockets and shells, and this only emphasizes how everything is interconnected, end quote. Russian soldiers who are hitting the end of their contracts are not being released. In the U.S. military, this is called stop-loss and is done to hold critical personnel in times of extreme need. There has been a flood of complaints among Russian troops who aren't being released, with the Russian MOD responding, quote, On the basis of the decree of the President of the Russian Federation of September 21, 2022, number 647, on the announcement of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation, all dismissals were suspended except for the grounds provided for in certain subparagraphs. End quote. The indefinite extension of contracts is equivalent to stealth mobilization, leaving tens of thousands of troops stuck in Ukraine. The only way home is hitting the retirement age of 56 to 66, depending on rank and specialty, permanent disability, criminal incarceration, or a zinc coffin. Near Svatova, Vologzhanin Golubyev, the son of former OMON Vologda riot police commander Sergei Golubyev, was killed when the MTLB Armored Personnel Carrier, or APC, he was commanding, was hit by Ukrainian artillery fire. Quick sidebar, the closest equivalent in the United States to OMON would be an FBI or CPB SWAT team. His father reported Golubyev, quote, enlisted on September 21st when partial mobilization was announced. He worked in the FSB as a deputy commander of a special forces team and retired at 38 after 20 years of service. It is not entirely clear why the internal security forces of the Russian Federation are conducting frontline combat missions in Ukraine. As a sign that PMC Wagner is suffering from recruiting woes, the company has again placed generic recruiting ads on its social media channels. They no longer offer a signing bonus. The base salary is 240,000 rubles for a six-month deployment with performance bonuses. Health and life insurance are provided with a, quote, guaranteed payout. In an additional sign of potential problems, equipment is provided, quote, for those in need. And prior military service and being rigorously fit is no longer a requirement. Wagner Group also launched a video in English targeting far-right and far-left conspiracy theory-embracing Americans. The video states, quote, You are a man. 
You are an American who dreams of reviving the greatness of your motherland, ready to fight the deep state. You are welcome. End quote. While Wagner has recruited globally for years, this is the first time they've created stylized material targeting election deniers and individuals who flirt with QAnon beliefs. All is going to plan. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is some graphic detail in today's report, as well as references to sexual violence. If you're sensitive to any descriptions of human rights abuses, if you are sensitive to descriptions of any human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Video is being shared on Russian channels of a PMC Wagner unit capturing Ukrainian soldiers near Bakhmut. The POWs were tortured, executed, and mutilated. The video originated on private Wagner Group Russian Telegram channels, and while we do have a copy, we can't actually share it due to the terms and conditions of Patreon. It's that bad. In a resolution statement passed by the European Union, the EU Parliament, quote, condemns the forced resettlement and deportation of Ukrainian children, including from healthcare institutions, to the Russian Federation and the Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine and their forced adoption by Russian families. And it calls on the EU and EU countries to provide support to find these children and reunite them with their families or legal guardians. End quote. Russian journalist Olga Zenkova from Russian state media NTV was raped by Chechen soldiers in occupied Melitopol. Zenkova and her cameraman were accosted in a restaurant with the Chechens beating her camera operator before gang-raping her. NTV management has complained to the Kremlin because local military authorities in Melitopol refused to investigate the incident. NTV is prevented from sharing the story due to Russia's so-called don't-say-war laws against, quote, discrediting the Russian military. Further, under established martial law, Russian forces in Ukraine are given broad latitude in conduct. The camera operator is reportedly hospitalized with no information about the condition of Zenkova. In geopolitical news, Ukrainian President Zelensky and Danish Prime Minister Fredriksson toured Mykolaiv before Fredriksson traveled to Moldova to meet with President Maya Sandu. During her visit, Fredriksson visited wounded Ukrainian soldiers and toured the destroyed sunflower seed oil tanks at the port of Mykolaiv and the water purification plant. Serhii Haidai may soon be dismissed from his role as the Luhansk Oblast administrative and military administrative governor and named the new Ukrainian ambassador to Kazakhstan. Haidai became the governor on the 25th of October 2019 and was the only oblast leader to see his region fall fully under Russian control. New U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation Lynn Tracy met with Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov at the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs before heading to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Tracy was heckled and jeered when she arrived at the embassy, with people accusing her of being a terrorist. 
Switzerland and Sweden have legendary neutrality statuses, for better or worse, but no one talks about Costa Rica, which doesn't even have a military. Costa Rica joined the Crimea platform, a more than 60-nation group from the habitable continents calling for Russia to deoccupy the Crimean Peninsula. The source code for the Yandex search engine was leaked on the internet, and it revealed that the Kremlin directed the search engine not to show images of President Putin for image searches of Bunker Grandfather, Bald, and Chief Thief, among others. It also blocked displaying the Z symbol and iconography from searches for Nazi symbols. In economic news, Russia and Iran have integrated their banking systems, enabling the two nations to bypass SWIFT, which will aid in hiding money transfers. Oh, that's super convenient. Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Iran, Mohsen Karimi, told reporters, quote, Iranian banks no longer need to use SWIFT with Russian banks, which can be used to make letters of credit, transfers, or guarantees, end quote. Businesses in the occupied territories are under increasing pressure to re-register as Russian entities, creating a bit of a revenue problem for the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. See, when the businesses receive Russian registration, the taxes they're charged go to Russia. And that's, I mean, like the old-school pre-2014 Russia, not the, like, annexed Frankenstein Russia. The changes are already starting to bleed the coffers of the LNR and DNR. Russian crude oil shipments to northern Europe and the Mediterranean have dropped to almost zero after the price cap and insurance requirement sanctions kicked in on December 5th. A market Russia started developing in earnest in the early 90s has been destroyed in less than a year. Predictions of an energy crisis in Europe, the Pacific Rim, and North America caused by undersupply and spiraling prices just never materialized as other producers stepped up production and demand retreated in China. The EU Council announced over the weekend that sanctions against Russia would be extended to July 31, 2023. While Russia continues to insist that sanctions aren't impacting life, Buyers of new Ladas are facing further constrictions. The Lada Granta will no longer come with power locks in any trim due to a lack of parts. And if you want to buy a new 2023 Lada, we hope you like dark green, black, or white, because those are the only colors available due to a lack of pigments. There are calls for Turkey to ban Boeing passenger aircraft operated by Russian airlines from landing in the nation. Russian airlines are accused of bypassing sanctions by making basic repairs and maintenance on Boeing aircraft in Turkey before flying back to Russia. Russia continues a stealth blockade of Odessa, dragging its feet on inspecting bulk grain and food-grade oil carriers waiting to transit the Bosporus. Over 115 vessels await inspection, including 25 already loaded. 84 inspections were not completed last week, allowing only 664,000 tons of food to leave Odessa, one-third of the amount moved two weeks ago. The ruble declined, with an exchange rate of 71 for one U.S. dollar. 
Western oil prices also declined after Saudi Arabia announced it was investing $270 billion in clean energy, inventory reports, and fears the global economy is cooling. WTI crude fell to $77 a barrel, and Brent dropped to $84. Russian Ural's crude also fell, with an official price of $57 a barrel. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market dropped to $2.47 a gallon, that's $0.65 cents a liter, as investors dumped delivery contracts with January deliveries before the month ends. Dutch TTF natural gas futures were up, with March 2023 hitting €59 Euros per megawatt hour and April 2023 futures trading at €60. Euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures brushed off the news about power outages and partial blockade of Odessa, falling to $7.49 a bushel for March 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.